Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lindsay Fitzharris, author of The Butchering Art, which, so we were just talking about other guests I've had on, and you were like, and now you're having on this silly book, and I was about to correct you, and then I figured, fuck it, we're going to start recording, and there's a reason why I wanted to get this in, is because, so I started this podcast December 12th, 2019, I read your book, or listened to it, that, like, the summer prior, and that may kind of sound like trivial, like, okay, whatever, now I listen to audiobooks. Like I, I'm my own boss. I choose my guests. I don't have any like team. And so I'm always listening to books now. Like I'm listening to, you know, probably two audiobooks a week now. But oh, wow. before the podcast, I truly, there was no reason for me to listen to anything unless I really <laughs> wanted to. So that book, anyone that listens to this podcast kind of knows like another book I'm obsessed with, Raven Rock about nuclear bunkers. And they also know that I've mentioned this book a million times, The Butchering Art. And to me, it's not just a silly book because it's something the biggest compliment I can give is I listened to it before I started the podcast. So when I that is yeah. a huge compliment. No, but seriously, it's from a time when I would listen to like two audiobooks a year, that was one of them. But please introduce You know your- what? The guy who read that book, his name is Ralph Lister. So I mean, for people who are tuning in or like why why you know what what the hell is this book about? It's about this guy, Joseph Lister, who's a surgeon in the 19th century, and he changes fundamentally how we understand the body. And when they were sending me, because I'm not a voice actor and nobody wants to hear me read my own books. So they're sending me voice actors, and at first they were sending me female voices, and I said it really feels like it needs to be a, a male voice because it's Lister's story. So they send me this guy, Ralph Lister, and I said, wait a second, is he related to Joseph Lister? And they're like, oh, we'll ask. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a long-term, you know, ancestor. I was like, well, I don't even care what he looks yeah. like. Like, he's got to do the book. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually was joking on Twitter because my next book is about a guy named Harold Gillies, who is a, uh, a surgeon who was rebuilding soldiers' faces during the First World War. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of the origins of plastic surgery. And um, he has a very famous great, great, great nephew named Daniel Gillies, who's a Hollywood actor. And I tweeted that because Ralph Lister had done the audiobook for The Butchering Art, I needed a Gillies to do the next one. And he tweeted at me. He said, yeah, let's do this. So I don't know if it's going to happen, but this is going to be like a thing. Now, every time I write a book about a famous figure, I'm going to have to find an ancestor to do the audiobook. That's incredible. Um, that is awesome, actually. And because I was going to say, as like an audiobook total nerd, I'd like to me, like a good narrator can make or break a story. Like a good oh, book yeah. will always be a good book regardless, but a bad narrator can really, can really <laughs> fuck up a book. It's before yeah. I keep going for everyone listening, please introduce yourself. <laughs> I, I introduced you as the woman that wrote the butchering art, but introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I am though. It's, it's funny because when you asked me to be on this podcast, I, I thought, oh my gosh, it's been four years since I've, you know, since that book came out, and I've been four years in the trenches yeah. of World War One, and so I thought, oh god, I got to remind myself about the butchering art. Uh, but yeah, I'm a medical historian. I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine. I'm not the kind of doctor that can save your life, but I can tell you how people tried to save your life in the 19th century, which is what the butchering art is about. And um, I have a TV show on the Smithsonian called The Curious Life and Death of, which is about just kind of various deaths. So we did uh, Harry Houdini. Uh, we did uh, Brittany Murphy. All just kinds of mysterious deaths. You know, everybody does that show. So, so yeah, it's basically what I do. I'm a freelance writer, and uh, I go around talking about how bad it was to live in the past. Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, it's – I remember when I first when I first decided to, I was like – Cause after a while, when I started the podcast, I was like, why don't I start interviewing authors? And like, as it's, as I've slowly gotten bigger guests, I've, cause I'm such a, like a nerd about all this shit that, whereas I used to just kind of look up like obscure videos and stuff. Now I'm like, I wonder if I can talk to them. And so it's kind of like this, it, it's this facade of like, I'm doing a podcast and really I'm like, I just want to talk to this guy about, I'm like, what was it like to do that? And it's just, oh yeah, I'll videotape it. We'll call it a podcast. But really, I'm just like, yeah. so to me, it's like, I mean, uh, 
we're out there. We're hiding under the rocks. You know, writers like to kind of hide away. I was just, I just did a virtual event 30 minutes ago with an author and we were joking about like people romanticize this process. And I live in a very small village in Britain. And when I first moved here, <laughs> a woman came and knocked on my door and she was like, are you the writer? You know, and I had like no makeup. I, I, I hadn't showered in days. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, what you do is so romantic. I know. I was like this little creature crawling out. I was like, there's nothing romantic about what I do. You know, I sit here in my head, you know, for years. And then eventually your, your publisher pushes you out into the limelight yeah. and you have to kind of try to sell this to people and convince them that it's a story worth, worth reading. So although I, 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 you know, I say, oh God, the butchering art again, you know, it's just been so incredible that people have connected with this book. And I feel really passionately that Lister's story should be better known. I'm trying to get it made into a movie, but that might be a pipe dream. I think it could. Be. I mean, so I've, I've, one of the guys I've interviewed is Dr. Ken Albeck, the first director of the Soviet Union bioweapon program. And I always have to put in the caveat, not that he wanted to, he was told to, you know, Soviet Union, yeah. you know, he's, he's, oh, he wanted to be a doctor and help people. And they're like, okay, like what if instead of helping people, we put smallpox on the tip of a missile. And you yeah. know, if you, if you don't, your family's going to die on a Google. So he defected to the U S in 92 biggest intelligence coup ever. I've had him on. His daughter has autism and now he's trying to cure autism. And this guy is brilliant. And so, but he was talking to me early on and now we've done a ton of podcasts about autism. He has, he has on guests whose kids have autism and how his treatment's working. And he, he's very, you know, he'll never, I've asked him like, do you want me to ask certain questions? And he's, he's always in a thick accent. He's always like, no, you know, like put it down. But what he's saying is, is don't give me any, don't give me a leg up, like shoot it down, yeah. tear it apart. And to yeah. me, I'm like, there's a guy that knows his shit. He's ready to defend mm. it. And he said, you know, he's like a lot of people, you like to kind of laugh at this. And I actually brought up your book. Like the first time I talked to him, I was like, think about Joseph Lister. And obviously this guy knew his <laughs> history. I was like, you, people are crazy until yeah. they're brilliant. And I was like, so, but so yeah. there's a guy who's the head of the Soviet weapon, the Soviet bioweapon program who, I cited your book and his face lit up and he was like, that's a good point. So it is. But so for, for, to me, really it's the first time I listened to it, it was just like the most disgusting thing I'd ever listened to. And I, and I say that in the best way. It's just like a book of horror. I mean, truly, right. Just like what they're describing and like the corpses and the sawdust and like the, you know, like the beds have like flowers growing on them. Cause there's so much fungus and bacteria. <laughs> And yeah, 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 and you're just listening to this, and you're like, Jesus. And I'm, and I remember like, was the guy who like sucks on like the blood or pus of some oh, yeah. woman's neck and like spits it out. And you listen to this, By and you're, the way, I tried to tell that story on NPR, and they cut it. <laughs> they were like, you can't, you can't say. So I love that you're bringing it up to your podcast audience because that I feel like that story alone will you know get people to buy it. Ropes it in. It's yeah. I remember. So wrote- yeah, I vividly remember like pausing it. And like telling yeah, my I mean, mom. To, for people listening, basically, there was this surgeon in the 19th century. This woman is brought in and she's asphyxiating on all this blood and pus that's gathered in her neck. And so he cuts into her trachea and all this pus and blood begins spilling out. And in this sort of inspired moment, he lowers his mouth onto it and he begins sucking this pus out. And he does it for like five mouthfuls. And the woman lives and he lives. And actually, for the purposes of the book, it would have been great if they both died because it was incredibly dangerous. Um, but this is like these are the stories that illustrate what it was like before Joseph Lister comes on and we understand germ theory and how you know actual infections yeah. spread but before that people didn't understand that and um and as you say there was a lot of pushback when Lister comes up with um the idea of antisepsis mm-hmm. and begins advocating germ theory there was tons of pushback from within the medical community yeah. itself you know they just don't believe it and people say well I can't I can't understand why but you know you imagine there's this young guy and he's telling you that there are these invisible little creatures and you have to believe me, they're killing your patient. I can see them with a microscope. Um, and for lots of reasons, doctors weren't using microscopes at this time. And the other part of that was he was telling these doctors that they had been inadvertently killing their patients. And that was a really hard pill for them to swallow because nobody wants to think that they're kind of adding to the problem. And so we see this time and again in science and medicine, we see that when we're going to shift a paradigm, there's a lot of resistance at first. Yeah. And so, and, and I think that it's really good that doctors and scientists read this book 
not just because of my bank account, because that would help me <laughs> as a writer, but but no, but also because I think there's something to to be said about keeping an open mind when it comes to new ideas, when it comes to medicine and science. Yeah, and it and it is, and and well, it's one of the things I point to, and it's also who's it, Bruno, the astronomer that was burned at the stake. Like there mm-hmm. are these cases of like. Yeah, not just pushback from the layman. You know, it's easy to look back yeah. at like your average guy in the streets in like Britain yeah. in like the eighteen hundreds. He's like, you know, like, hey, there are germs in here, and it's yeah. like, sure, but no, it was it was the heads of all these of, of these department heads, and uh-huh. not only, I mean, with everything involved, there's ego. So you have this clashing yeah. of like, you're telling me how to do this, yeah, but yeah. also it's what do you do when it's not only are you telling me I'm wrong, you're telling me that me, a doctor. I potentially have been killing 90% of my patients. Yeah. It's a huge yeah. moment and of humility. It, it's, it's huge. And, and Lister really ultimately uh, is victorious because he turns to the younger generation of surgeons and he teaches them about antisepsis and they become known as the Listerians and they go out, and they spread the gospel of Lister, but it's a slow burn. So if I ever get this movie made, it's going to look like this Hollywood kind of, you know, it happens really fast, yeah. like within a year, but it's literally decades of change that he brings about. And it's, it's not all linear. And, and we have to remember that progress in science medicine isn't linear. You know, you take two steps forward, one step backwards. The other thing is that Lister got criticized because when he came out with his theories, he was always adjusting, you know, he was experimenting and adjusting his advice about how to use antisepsis. And surgeons would say, well, you're admitting you were wrong. But we would recognize that today as a scientific method in progress. So he's learning, he's adjusting. But they were using that as evidence that he was wrong. He didn't know what he was doing. So again, you know, you're it, within science and medicine, advice is going to constantly change. So you you see that playing out in the butchering art a lot. Yeah. And it's... You see that, and and then there's also guys who refuse. You can see the politicization of it, right? They're like, oh, yeah. you know, if he mentions one thing about carboxylic acid, he's out. And it's like, <laughs> even then, you're like, I thought this was about medicine, and you're like, all no, the department not. chairs, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the Lancet, which is like the lead medical yeah. journal, even of its time in the 1960s, it's like a burn book. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially where doctors go to kind of burn each other. And a lot of times the doctor who was the best debater won, it didn't really necessarily have to do with the science or the, or the facts behind it. It was like who was kind of the flashiest. I mean, some of these surgeons actually got into duels. Like they would have sword fights over you know, these ridiculous arguments. So I, I think all of that kind of swirling. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. ...around Lister. And in another background, too, is, you know, Lister, when I think about a movie, because I have that in my mind a lot, trying to kind of push forward with this idea, Lister is a Quaker, and he's, um, so he's he dresses very differently to the average person at this time. If anybody's seen Gangs of New York, you might think that that was kind of a fabrication of how they dressed. But actually, early Victorians, they wore those like crazy colors and those plaids, lots of patterns. It's only when Victoria kind of plunges the nation into mourning that everybody kind of gets drab and black. You know, we think of the Victorians sort of wearing black and white. Um, but actually, they're really colorful, and it was a very dirty world, and it was kind of circus-like. And the operating theater was filled to the rafters with ticketed spectators. Yeah. I mean, people bought tickets to see this play out. So you can imagine this carnival atmosphere around Lister, who, as a Quaker, would actually be dressing very somberly. He would have not been wearing a lot of color because that was part of the religion at the time. So I like to think visually of this story as like you can almost picture Lister as this kind of cleaner figure in the middle. And as the story progresses, it gets a bit more clean and more kind of black and white, more how we think of the Victorians. But one of the best compliments I got on this book, which wasn't meant to be a compliment on Amazon, but someone said, this book gets more boring as it as it goes on because people aren't dying. Like no one's testicles are flying yeah. off, you know, sort of at the end of the book. Like Lister is victorious. He's, he's telling people to slow down in the operating theater. He's telling people to clean up. So you don't get that kind of, you know, shock 
yeah. of the Victorian hospital at the end of the book than you do at the beginning. So the beginning might be a little bit more fun for people who like that kind of voyeuristic aspect of it. Well, it's even like what we're talking about now, right? World War One. I. I mean, the trench, it starts with this massive clash and then it settles into this, you know, the first month of World War One was more, for not to sound, you know, apathetic, but more entertaining as just looking yes. at it objectively than the next four years, right? Yeah. I mean, well, in the thing with World War One, I, I mean, there's so many crazy things about World War One that I learned. Like, for instance, oh, these yeah. guys were being sent to the trenches without any headgear efforts. Oh, so yeah. uh, there's a lot of, I mean, they were totally unprepared. They didn't, a lot of them didn't realize that you couldn't look over the trenches and dodge the gunfire. So they were getting hit in the face at, at tremendous rates. Um, but, you know, thing, as you say, like as World War I progresses too, med- medicine also gets better. Um, so we get better at removing these guys from the trenches. But the irony is that we also get better at it and we prolong the war yes. because we're essentially medically being able to return these men and feed that war machine. So it's this really terrible, vicious cycle. But yeah, I think um, with the butchering art, with the Victorian hospitals, certainly like at the end, people are like, oh no, they look, they, they feel so sanitized now. It's not as entertaining as it kind of was at the beginning when the maggots were growing in the sheets and, you know, things like that people love. But that's what that is. But to me, that shows exactly what your point is, right? I mean, I go to the hospital yeah. now and it's very, you know, just quiet. You hear like a phone ringing. There's fluorescent lighting. Please come in. You're like, tss, tss, Mr. Carey, yeah. how are you doing? Wait. But that's what it that's what it was supposed to be. And you can almost see this like this weird symbolism of things getting cleaner, like you said, like representing like germ theory. In the beginning, it's just this crazy, you know, everyone's wearing yeah. this brightly colored, just like three piece, you know, carnival guys. <laughs> yeah. And then it finally settles into but, like, uh, dip your gloves, dip the tubing into like a carboxylic acid, you know, go yeah. slowly. Not everything needs to be a surgery, like slow it down. But just for the sheer entertainment value, that's another thing. And I wanted to get to this that I love about it. There's something about I'm, me and my buddy Cal in college and fall 2009 we were in our dorm rooms and i remember we used to just we'd laugh so hard we'd get like a bottle of vodka be playing mario kart and we'd laugh so hard at the fact that like you know andrew jackson like beat the shit out of his would-be assassin with a cane just this kind of like different <laughs> level of just these old kind of wild-eyed like teddy roosevelt you know like where's the quote like death came and I mean, got teddy in his sleep because if it was if he was awake he would have fought like, yeah, there's, I mean, there's crazy, like, you think about that, like, there's a, there's a guy, um, uh, that one of the, the men in Lincoln's cabinet, I'm going to tell this story and people probably going to correct me. So I'm, I'm trying to remember, yeah. but he was also uh, attacked during the assassination attempt in his bed, but he like fought back in this wild and crazy and he ended up shattering his jaw that's the reason why i know that story because i deal a little bit in the next book with civil war kind of reconstruction stuff but it was this insane story you think wow like to get out of bed and someone's stabbing you and you're like fighting this guy with a cane and a monocle i mean what was going on in the 19th century but that's that's (laughs) what i mean uh there's a a guy i've I've had on uh, an air force colonel who wrote a book about like early surveillance and like towards the end of the Civil War, like the first guys going up in hot air balloons and like oh, every uh, once yeah. in a while, like I think one guy and it wasn't in the United States in the Civil War, but it was in France. But they were going over some enemy line or I don't remember one might have been no Napoleon was too early. Point is, is there was a there was a French guy and I think a British guy and they're up on this just this janky hot air balloon. Right. in their stupid yeah. three piece suits and they <laughs> shot like a cannonball. And the guys like comically, they actually ducked and it went over them and they stood back up and looked both ways and apparently they held up the middle finger and said like viva la france but it was like you can see the birth of the sort of the fighter jet jock pilot top gun you can see the birth but there's just this whole image of just these crazy guys in the 19th century and that's what i love about the butchering artists at the beginning i just i get this image and that's why you do need to make it in a movie is i always laugh because it's like just these guys yeah yeah big suits i mean my husband who's a a caricaturist he's always like going on about like you know these these british explorers that would climb everest with like you know a two-piece suit and a smile (laughs) you're like what how did they even survive and you get you definitely i mean in world war one these pilots that were going up now they're going up just you know a few years after the wright brothers these planes are very rude they're bringing 
pistols up there. They're bringing pistols for what? You know, and and you get these it's just absolutely insane stories about these pilots um going up there. And I think they they call themselves the twenty minute club because that was about how long you probably survived in air before being shot down. And and again, you know, within, for the purposes of my next book, I'm talking about the injuries that occur from these horrific plane crashes. But yeah, I mean the Civil War, uh, and and then you see in the 19th century. So a lot of people, when I talk about the the butchering art, they think about the Civil War because now Lister he comes up with his antisepsis and and germ theory. And they should be doing that in the Civil War, but they're not. It hasn't quite made it over to America. And so they're still packing wounds with, with mud in some cases. And the, the infection rates were just out of control. I mean, these surgeons were literally sewing these men's fate up when they were sewing these wounds up without cleaning them properly. Yeah. So they would become septic. And if you become septic, that travels, if it gets into the bloodstream, I mean, you're gone. Yeah. And I like to remind people, too, that we still, you know, people still die of septicemia today. They still die of these conditions. But the difference is that we understand how they spread. So they're better. We're better able to proactively prevent it and certainly better able to treat it. Now, if you don't understand germs, this is a very dangerous situation. And that's what we see time and again. So imagine going into the operating theater, operating on a patient and they die and they die and they die. It would be very frustrating. Some people out there might have seen the show The Nick on um, Showtime, which was with Clive Owen. It was brilliant. And it was about a hospital in 1900. So I always say the butchering art is the prequel to The Nick. So whatever you think of, you know, how bad it was in The Nick, this is a lot worse. Because by the time The Nick comes around and Clive Owen's character comes around, they understand germs. So there's still an attempt to kind of sanitize the environment. They still don't know 100% what they're doing. And the interesting thing about the Nick is that character is based off a, a surgeon named Halstead, who was a real person. And he was um, he was a cocaine addict. I mean, he was so high on cocaine all the time. This guy, and this is where we get this kind of hangover of the machoism of surgery and how surgeons will like basically work themselves to death. Yeah. Because Halstead, he would unsurprisingly, work all the time. He was high on coke all the time. I mean, the guy had a real serious problem. And everybody was trying to kind of keep up with Halstead's schedule. And so that's a real hangover from that kind of era. But these surgeons, they were they were testing, you know, these drugs. They were discovering and testing the stuff on them. Uh, the butchering art begins with the discovery of ether, mm -hmm. uh, anesthesia. And we get that phrase, ethereal uh, experiences mm -hmm. because these guys were like they were drinking it and they were sniffing it and they were they were trying it out on themselves and so it was this really weird unregulated time in medicine where something happened you know something's discovered and everybody kind of gets onto it and nobody knows how safe it is until it's kind of too late <laughs> but that's what i fucking love so much about it is there's just this this mad imagery of like Everyone's got their tickets and it's like, all right, and we're going to start. And it's just, you hold him down so he can't scream. And like the one patient runs to the bathroom and the surgeon goes out and he's like, uh-uh, yes. throws him down. I was listening to it again because I listened to it again for this podcast. And he's talking, he's like, held him down and like, you know, put one line like up his like, up his urethra and another one. And I was literally doubled over on my bed doing laundry. It was just like, I forgot. I was like, oh. And he's like, all of it. But then you hear it's like, and done in 60 seconds. And you're like, well, that was the sort of brutality before there was, you know, before. It was. I mean, you had to be fast yes. because this was anesthesia. So so the, the story he's telling is is um Robert. There was a guy named Robert Liston who, not to be confused with Lister, yeah. but Liston was, he was 6'2", he was really tall. Um, and he was really strong and he could hold you down with his left arm and take off your leg in under 30 seconds, which is exactly what you wanted when there was no anesthesia. Yeah. And he, he got into these like almost comical. It's funny because, you know, the 19th century is long ago enough that we can kind of like look at yeah. this, like how crazy it was. It gets different, like the tone and the way I feel about stories like the World War One stuff is like much more somber because, you know, I and it, it shouldn't be that way. Like everything was awful, like getting your testicles yeah. sliced off in yeah. the century was awful. all of the world is hell just I, I it's, it's, it's all hell stories, but it's like it's there's there's a different i think there's a different feel for my next book but the, but this one with the butchering art like there's definitely like a almost like a comedic aspect to robert yes. liston that character because he does get into these i mean you read these stories and you think how did this guy continue to operate because 
in one story, um, as you were saying, there's this patient who's brought onto the table and the patient looks at him and thinks, I'm not going through this. So he jumps off the table. He runs across the room. He locks himself in a closet. Robert Liston, remember, big guy from Victorian period, chases after him, rips the door off the hinges, drags this guy back. And there's like a ticketed audience like watching this. So there is something outrageous yeah. about this, you know, in the 19th century. And, and, and it's sometimes you have to remind yourself like, oh my God, like that was a real person. Yeah. And, you know, that really happened. And also to, to Liston's credit as kind of comedic as some of his mishaps are, it must have been horrible for him. Like, I mean, can you imagine going into the operating theater? You're going to be watched. You have this reputation and you have to fight against a patient who is literally fighting you. The whole thing would have been awful for sort of everybody involved. But one of the famous stories about Liston, which may, you know, it, it's one of those stories that circulates. So all the details are kind of like, you know, sure. a little bit obscure, but he was so fast that he had this this patient on the table, and as he was operating, he was switching knives, and he would hold these bloody knives in his mouth, just to <laughs> underline just how unhygienic this was. And as he was switching knives, he um he took off his assistant's finger, and then as he's switching knives, he uh, sliced the coat of a spectator behind him. And it was said that the patient died of gangrene, the assistant died of gangrene, and the spectator died of shock. He must have had like some kind of stroke or something from this experience. And so it's jokingly referred to as the only operation with a 300% mortality rate. So I love Robert Liston in this book because he is this kind of, you know, crazy character and he really represents the old guard of surgery. Whereas you then have Joseph Lister, who is this kind of somber, quiet, methodic, you know, surgeon who comes along and he's trying to change this kind of carnival aspect of surgery in the 19th century. And he does, you know, he does do it, thank goodness. But it was definitely an uphill battle for him. But it is, right, it's like the uh, Chuck Yeager and like the Bell X-1, the first plane to break the sound barrier. No one knew what was going to happen. And there was no drone. Yeah. So they're like, fuck it. Who wants to hop in there? Yeah. You get in there and you're just like, do this shit. Drop well, me I off. Look at, look at Look at the, the the space stuff now. I'm like, I wouldn't be going up in the first. You know, oh, no. I mean, people are really brave to do that on some level. I mean, there people. This this is human nature. Like we all kind of want to be the first, but also, you know, in terms of these patients who undergo these surgeries, you have to imagine they are in a very desperate situation because. Yeah, to put yourself in the hands of someone knowing that you're likely to die, and by the way, your chances of dying probably went up. Uh, depending on where you fell in the day. So if you're like the last patient, you're going in, the operating table is not going to be clean, you know, because they didn't wash their hands between patients. They didn't wash their instruments. Now people go, well, that seems crazy. But remember, if you don't understand germs, it makes no sense to wash your hands because your hands are just going to get dirty with the next patient. So why would you spend time? This is, you know, washing your hands. You'd have to go find clean water. That would be a whole process. You want to get patients in and out. So if you imagine you're the last patient in the line, you know, out of maybe 10 that day, that table is going to be filthy. Those instruments are going to be filthy. It would have been just awful. Now, if you ever make it to London, you got to go to the old operating theater in London. It's the second oldest in the world. I always like to mention it because small museums are, are great places, but they have the table that they think Liston performed the first operation under ether on. And when you see the table, you're going to go, wow, Victorians were really small. But actually, the table is designed, because the Victorians were, were geniuses. They loved science and engineering. It's designed in a way so it's very low to the ground. Now, the reason is, because if you have a table mm -hmm. sort of here, you, if people imagine, like, I'm, yeah. I'm pointing sort of high up, um, you, you have to use your uh, body strength to get a leg off. So you're going to want to push downwards, and you want to push your weight into the sawing motion. So the table is going to have to be low enough so that you can do that to facilitate speed. The other thing is that that table has all kinds of things, like parts of it um, come out to make it longer. So people weren't necessarily smaller, although they probably were a little bit smaller at this time. The Industrial Revolution hits, diets kind of get worse, so we, we get a little bit smaller in the sort of late 19th century. 
Incidentally, it's totally a myth. In the 18th century, where we were taller, George Washington was six two. Yeah, people always think of you know of of Lincoln, but actually, you know, Washington was also quite tall. Um, so everything in the operating theater was designed to facilitate speed, and they weren't really thinking about how to save patients. They weren't necessarily good at saving patients, but they, that was the goal. It wasn't meant to be torturous and horrible. And I always like to remind people that it was it was horrible, probably mentally for the surgeons themselves. And if you do watch the Nick, you'll see that psychological impact, you know, that that it has on the doctors going into that operating theater and losing patients all the time. Yeah. And it's I was thinking about this the other day, like, you know, like those old videos of like the 1920s, like racetracks. And it's there's like no fencing. They're just standing on the side of the track and like yeah. a car will lose its like balance and like fly into the crowd. And it's like 10 dead. Yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah. But so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about it yesterday. I was thinking about obviously the patients, right? They're, they're in between a rock and a hard place. They have to have the surgery, but kind of other stuff like these doctors that would take the ether, take the cocaine, you know, the laudanum, just like, fuck it. Let's see what happens. You know, use a candle. Don't get the wax on the patients. Go for it. Like you hear about that and you think, well, what drives them to it? And you got to think, well, what's the alternative we look right now you know why would you want yeah. to go to space well it, is it 100 yeah. percent fatal well, no but there's a chance okay as opposed to what you're just going to go to your every day your nine to five like we all die eventually yeah. if a lot of these guys are going fuck it i might i might try to go to i might try to go walk on the moon i might yeah try- i mean and thank goodness for people who push the boundaries. Yeah. You know, we definitely need figures like that. I mean, if you look to it back into the 19th century and even before, people were experimenting with this stuff because a you could, like, it was readily available. But also, I should just add, people say, "Oh, weren't, didn't they give you brandy before ether? Or they give you some alcohol? They didn't actually do that as much as people think because it thins your blood. Mm-hmm. So you don't want the patient to be kind of deliriously drunk. So in most cases, you were pretty." awake, you were pretty aware. They also thought when ether came out that it could be dangerous because they believed that what kept you alive was the the um, the shock of it, that it would keep your heart going very quickly. And they, they came to this conclusion, a lot of doctors came to this conclusion because in battle, you know, you were more, they noticed that soldiers were more likely to survive an amputation if it was sort of in the heat of the battle, like in the moment, because their adrenaline's pumping, it's keeping the heart going. So they did worry that maybe anesthesia would lead to more deaths. And actually, ironically, it does lead to more deaths, but not in that way. It's because anesthesia comes before germ theory. So suddenly you no longer have to fight your patient. So you're more willing to pick up the knife. You're more willing to go deeper into the body, but you don't understand germs. And so suddenly post-operative infections rise. So the butchering art starts with the discovery of anesthesia, because I think that when people think of the history of medicine, they tend to kind of think of those moments, but actually things got a lot worse following immediately following the advent of anesthesia because germs weren't understood yet. Um, but it's but again, it's you know there were we needed the Halsteads, yeah. the cocaine, you know Halsteads who were. I mean, he he develops the radical mastectomy, and he's always pushing the boundaries, and Lister's pushing the boundaries, and you know these these men they don't always get it right, but they are pushing the boundaries in these periods, and as a result, they're fundamentally shifting the ways we kind of understand health and medicine today. And it's it's. We'd, I guess we'd have to go back to that time to be like, why are they doing this insane shit? And obviously, like we always have to like thank God for the people that push the borders. Like that's why we that's why we're not you know still hunter gatherers, right? But yeah, there's also just this sort of like alternative. Like in in two hundred years, they're probably gonna, or maybe even in our lifetimes with self driving cars, they're gonna be like, why did anyone used to get in cars? And we go, well. <laughs> But there's about, I think there's 36,000 fatalities a year in the United States on roads out of 350 yeah. million, right? So that's two per yeah. state per day. Okay. They might go, well, why would you ever get in a car? Why would you go near a road? Well, come back to 2021. What? What? Yeah. Am I just am I just not going to yeah. go visit my friend? Am I not yeah. going to go to just go to the bar and get some drinks? Like, am I not going to go to yeah. drive to Walmart? I think that if you want to put yourself back in that mindset, there's almost this sort of like, no one's living forever. And now yeah. as we get to radical life extension, someone might. But like there's a certain point of like, hey, man, whether it's on the operating table or whether it's, you know, when I get yeah. hit by a horse in a week, I think there was this <laughs> general sort of fuck it. Right. It's just this. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, and, and as you said, I mean, life was really cheap back then. Yeah. So, you know, people were, as you say, like, you know, the, the 10, 10 people suddenly die from this kind of crazy accident. And it, we, we live in a culture of like extreme safety now yeah. and people expect it. And, you know, there's a lot of pros to that. But people in the 19th century, they didn't have an expectation of being kept safe necessarily. And of course, we have to remember, too, that. The, the patients whose bodies that medicine was being built on were largely the, the bodies of the poor people because these hospitals, if you were wealthy or if you were middle class, you didn't go into these hospitals um, because the, your chances of not coming out were quite high. So if you had enough money, your surgeon would come to your house and you would have your operation on your own dining room table, perhaps. And you probably were more likely to survive it, even though that sounds crazy to us. Um, but these, these places were for the poor. And so if you were poor and you were desperate, you would go in. Sometimes you would prepay for your burial because it was so expected yeah. you were going to die in these institutes. And um, and it was those people who a lot of these experiments were made on. And on top of it, it was those people whose bodies went unclaimed and that the medicine got to dissect and to learn from. And those are all important parts to acknowledge about medicine. It's kind of like the darker side of medicine, but that's certainly what's going on in Lister's time. And I, and I want to touch on that in a second. Um, I was going to say, just uh, before I forget, Oh, fuck, what was I going to say? I think I did forget. Damn it. I, I had a point. I had a point. It was right there, and I was going to... Well, I can't... can't. You can't think about it. Oh, it's, God, this is going to drive me crazy. No, no, no. I did. Because I, I meant to say it earlier. When you look back at World War One and you look at how... And this was way earlier. When we look at, you know, kind of how dark it is and much more somber it is versus, like, you look at the Victorian era, it's almost like this uncanny valley. It's like World War One is too close. Like there are still videos of yeah. it. There's no sound. And we go, yeah. oh, that's bad. You know, you look at 9-11, yeah. you go, it's terrible. But then we go yeah. back to Victorian England and it's just like, you know, doing cocaine and chopping people up. And there's everyone's just like <laughs> doing the golf clap. Yeah, and mean, that, that was going on in like 1950. We would probably not have this. Yeah. It's, it's like my favorite uh, British comedian over here, David Mitchell, has this um, YouTube show called Soapbox. And he does this kind of thing about, you know, if it's if it's if it happened really long ago, it can be funny almost. But like if it happened recently, it's not funny. And there isn't like I just want to be clear: there's nothing funny about you know these people dying in the 19th sure. century. But there is something you know, like I said, like Robert Liston. There's like a, like a, almost like a comedic aspect to it because we can't. It's so far removed from our own experiences about what medicine is like. Whereas World War One, you know, this this next book. It's it's not just about um, the doctors. It's about these these boys. Let's face it. You know, some of these men were as young as sixteen, and they were going out into these trenches. They had no idea what they were getting into, and they were getting their faces blown off. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, I've looked at their yeah, photographs and their horrific stories. So you know, and and then on top of it, actually, generationally, we're not that far removed from these men. In fact, so much so that I had to prove that these guys were dead to access their patient files in the archives, um, which was crazy because I thought, like, what if I found out one of these guys was still alive? There's, like, no way, right? Yeah. But I still had to produce um, death certificates and things like that to kind of get access to these records. So yeah, it's one, it's one of those things. I mean, the butchering art is a fun story. And I say that even though it's like an incredibly gruesome story and, you know, there's, there's some people who will pick it up and it's just not their cup of tea because it's just too visceral. But I always say that I would not be doing justice to the patients who endured these operations if I wasn't explaining exactly what that was like to get on that table. I mean, this was not a pleasant, this was, this was your last chance. If you're on that table, this is your last chance. And really, these patients were very brave themselves to undergo these surgeries. In fact, I talk about how Lister performs a mastectomy on his own mm -hmm. sister on his own dining room table, again, talking about how to you know, control infection rates. And for him to have to do that, I mean, imagine having to operate on your own sister, but he's the only one who can do it at that time because he's the only one who's operating with this antiseptic method. So he trusts himself to do it. And I won't tell readers what happens there, but you know, I think that this is what makes Lister's story so compelling. He's a man who is, he's, he's the right man at the right moment. And I think we see this a lot in history. Um, if anybody's seen that movie, Lincoln, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Lincoln. Um, but there's a really great moment, which is fictitious, I'm sure. But it was a great moment where he's talking to um, 
to a sort of underling. And he says, do you think that we're fitted for the times? And the boy answers, I do think we're fit. Or he goes, I don't know if we're fitted for times, but I think you might be fitted for the times. It's something like that. And I think that was, that was perfect because Lincoln was the right person at the right time. And when you unpack everything that was kind of going on, you can't really imagine someone else you know, accomplishing what he was able to accomplish in that short period in the same kind of way. And I think Lister is very much the right person at the right time. His father gives him a microscope when he's a boy. He's scientifically minded. He's, he's um, open to that. He goes on to medical school. He's curious in a way that maybe other surgeons aren't. This is a time when surgeons are very much handymen, basically. They're men who work with their hands. Um, it's not a respected profession in the way that it is today. But he's curious. He's scientific. He comes across Louis Pasteur's germ theory. He starts piecing this puzzle together. And you have to wonder, you know, how long would it take for us to solve that mystery if Lister hadn't been in that position at that time? Yeah. Yeah. And on yeah, on, on the comedic front, well, it's like that saying, right? Uh, uh, tragedy plus time tragedy, plus time yeah. is comedy. And it, 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 and it, yeah, it's you look back at it, you can't help. Right. It's like. It's like looking at, you know, slaves building the pyramids. It's just a hundred guys pulling up like a block and it slips and then they're done. And it's like, next, like there's something yeah. comedic about that. There, it just, I mean, there's no way to, I mean, it's, and again, it, it has to do like, we can't like relate to these events, yeah. I think. And yeah, I mean, and also you probably have guessed just from talking to me, I'm not someone who really takes myself seriously. So I like to kind of find the the funny, you, you know, aspects of, of, of these stories. And, but, but the, actually the delight is, you know, I tell people, you don't, a lot of people don't like history and I get it. Like you remember like your boring history teacher in school, but, um, I think that people who hate history might still like medical history because we all know what it's like to be sick. So where I come in, I can tell you, you know, what happened if your teeth were rotting in the 18th century, which was the case with George Washington, or what, you know, what would happen if you broke your leg in 1832? So I get to kind of fill in that universal experience. We can imagine what that's like, because we've all been there. We've been to the dentist. And then you think, ooh, yeah, the dentist is a great thing to be able to go to in 2021. What would happen in 18, you know, 72, if I had to go get my teeth checked, what would they end up doing for me? And, and actually to go back to World War One, I, I found out that a majority of the soldiers didn't own toothbrushes, even in 1914, Jesus. when this war began, I know, and they had such bad, their teeth were in such a bad state. And what was interesting was that in the 19th century, teeth in the army were taken more seriously because you had to bite the cartridges open. So they would say an army that can bite can fight. But after that, because like the weaponry changes stuff, it becomes less important. So you get to World War One and their teeth, like nobody really cares about their teeth at that point. So in, in the story that I'm going to tell, you have a horrible situation where men are getting hit in the face. They have bad teeth as it is. You have a lot of bacteria um, and you don't have any dentists at, at, at the beginning of the war. Um, so there is a dentist who appears in the story and he is like he's you're gonna love this guy because he had this Rolls Royce he was independently wealthy and he retrofitted it with a dental chair Jeez. and he drove it to the front under a hail of bullets well, to, to me that's that's just as yeah. funny as the butchering art it's just this crazy <laughs> fucking dentist there's biplanes so whirring around and it's just yeah it I know and his Rolls Royce still exists it actually went up for auction um I think in the last like 10 years or something but yeah it's it's a wild story so he's sort of one of my favorite quotes I use the word characters these are all real people yeah. but he's definitely one of those those people that you look at in awe because you think oh my gosh like the sacrifices you made and he also never charged for any of his services during the war so he's a really incredible person that would be featured in the book it, but there is there is something like funny in that though. It's the, I guess if we I guess oh, yeah. we can pinpoint what the humor is is it's like it's not just Victoria. It's this maybe it's this general like laughter in the face of just like overwhelming despair and technological yeah. incompetence. Whether it's Lister or whether it's driving your Rolls Royce yeah. into World War One with <laughs> horses running around and doughboys <laughs> and Maxim machine guns, I know. and you're like fuck it, who needs a root canal? Like there's something. <laughs> hilarious about but the pilots that after world war ii started flying into hurricanes and they're like let's see what's in these like I, I'm, it, 
it's honestly, I mean, when you think of it, but again, I go back to, you know, Bezos going into, I mean, everything we're doing right now, it's, it's that human nature to kind of just throw yourself into these really dangerous situations and to what, for, to what end we don't know. But the point is that things do, a lot of positive generally comes out of these things. Yes. You know, what, what is space exploration going to open for us at this time? We don't know yet. So, you know, I'm always open to those possibilities and, and I do look at these stories in awe, but it is like the guys who climbed Everest, you know, with a tweed jacket and a smile and, you know, just, yeah. like, what were they thinking? You yeah. know, and you see, I mean, Everest Day with all this kit and you just think of these early explorers going up there and it's just wild. And there's so many stories like that from history and they're, they're all incredible. Like, like Curtis LeMay in World War Two. They've they realized that the anti-aircraft guns on the Japan main island were all calibrated for thirty thousand feet. So they're like, let's just start flying at five thousand feet. Hey, what a gamble! Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it worked. Yeah. yeah, I mean these these blimps too in World War One. I. I mean, yeah. Every, like imagine how courageous or stupid or both you'd have to be to get into something like that. Um, these these huge hydrogen filled you know blimps. Uh, and there were all kinds of horrible accidents. And there's there's one story I tell in the book where uh, a pilot um, is seen going after this uh, Zeppelin in the air. And the spotlights in London like are trailing his plane as he kind of goes up to, to take this thing down. And he does ultimately take it down. And he was awarded the, the uh, uh, Victoria Cross, like, I think within 48 hours of this event happening. So it was another incredible event. So, you know, you do, you get these stories. And this is what I love about these periods is, you know, bringing this to life in a way that, you know, people think, oh, World War One is quite boring. I know about that. And I know about, you know, the Civil War. I know about Victorian surgery. But like, this is, there's so many, like, real life drama that plays out in these. And that's what I, I love bringing to life. I'm just thinking about like the imagery of like that, like your world war one, you're just at night, you're just out there with your friend. There's no TV right. and the spotlights are just tracking a biplane going to take yeah. out a blimp, which is like, probably looks like yeah. some mythical God. It's so big. I know. I mean, remember in Indiana Jones when they had the blimp, you yeah. know, in the third, I mean, those were really frightening looking yeah. machines. Um, and, and imagine these kind of going over. Now, obviously, people think of World War II with the Blitz, but there was a bombing campaign by the Germans of London in World mm -hmm. War I. Not, it's not on the same scale. But yeah, they were sending these Zeppelins over London, and they were killing a lot of people. And so they had to figure out how to take these things down. And these planes are, are so rudimentary. I mean, they're not really built to take something like that down. And so I talk about in the book the sort of how they unravel that mystery of how, like, where to hit the zeppelin to, to make that happen but one of the challenges was these these um little planes didn't go that high up into the air and so yeah i mean these pilots that went up there they were they you know and when i said earlier that they carried pistols they did carry pistols um maybe for for ridiculous reasons like today we would recognize ridiculous reasons but they also carried pistols because if they were going down they knew they weren't going to survive and so it was you know, to in case you wanted to take yourself out before you kind of hit the ground, and some, and obviously some of these men do survive their crashes and are terribly burned and and feature in the book. I shouldn't really be talking too no. much about this. I, no, I I fucking I fucking love it. No, I'm 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 thrilled by this. I'm just to me it's to me it it all sounds like it's just as insane. Like there is just, yeah. It was. Yeah, yeah, the tweed coat on Mount Everest like that. Here, so I'll have to come back, you know, and, and talk to you about that. Uh, Maybe Daniel Gillies will do the audio too, and I'll get my my to. dream of, of getting a an ancestor or, or getting someone whose ancestor is in the book to read the book. So we'll see if that happens. You have to, um, yeah. For butchering art, it's it's on Audible. Tell everyone where to get it. I, this has kind of been like the running theme of six hundred episodes. Is I have like the smallest bladder <laughs> in the world, so I have to go to the bathroom. Just tell everyone where where to find. It's on Audible. Tell them where else to find it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm alone now on the podcast, but you guys can pick up the book really anywhere: Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Um, it, it's kind of everywhere now. And you know, as a writer, it's always appreciated if you want to pick up the book. And it's really been my delight and joy to bring Lister's uh, story to life because I think it's just a really important story that everybody should know. Um, yeah, and I could go on and on while he's going to the bathroom about why I think medical history is important, but you probably don't want 
to hear that lecture, but um, it is, you know, Tommy has been chasing me to do this podcast. In fact, I think the last couple emails, the heading said, are you alive? Because I had disappeared for such a long time because I've been editing the manuscript and then copy edits and it's a whole process. And so I finally said, yes, I'm alive. And, you know, we should talk about the butchering arts. So I'm really glad that I was able to come on today. I guess we're going to find out how long this takes. You survived. I survived, yeah. I said that you've been chasing me to go on the podcast for so long. You've actually started to write emails like, are you alive? And I'm like, I, I'm just trying to finish this book. And it's I do so few podcasts these days because I've just been trying to focus on the book. And also it's like, I, I actually was worried about going on today because, like I said, the book came out in 2017. So I think, do I remember everything yeah. about that? Sounds crazy because it takes, you know, obviously you spend a lot of sure. time writing a book. Yeah, you you know, I've kind of switched, as you guys have probably been able to hear in this podcast, I've switched into World War yeah. One mode. So that's very much in my mind at the moment. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I, get, I mean, in 2013, I, I got into medical school. I couldn't pass a test if my life depended on it right now. And it's, a, no, I, I get, I get it. No, it's, it's, yeah. and you are one of the people I've pursued. And I remember I was like, when I was trying to find you originally, I was like, Oh, I was like, and, uh, and I found you and you're on Joe Rogan. And I was like, motherfucker. Like to me, that's not good. Cause I'm like, damn it. They they're on that one. Now I have to get, if I find someone and they're not on Rogan and I'm like, okay, I have a shot. But you were on Rogan. And I was well, like, but, you know, he, yeah, he invited me on and I have never been so nervous to go on a podcast because I thought, oh my gosh, like a two hour, two, three hour conversation, like, where is this going to go? And, but it was, it was great. It was a very easy conversation. And a lot of people found my book through that. So I, I'm usually uh, indebted about that. But yeah, it was, it's, it's always, it's always a little nerve wracking when you go on a podcast because you never know like the direction it's going to go or yeah, anything. Yeah. But as you can tell, this one has virtually no direction and it's, well, <laughs> it's, it's, well, seeing as how your mind's on World War One, um, I, I'm, I'm, I would love to keep talking about it. Obviously, I'll get it, I'll read it, I'll have you back on for that. But, um, yeah, without spoiling it, just so have, what, what did your research lead to you doing this? So you go from the butchering art, right? you go from these crazy guys with a monocle and a top hat, <laughs> these steampunk assholes drinking cocaine and morphine, <laughs> just chopping up babies, and they're like, boy, just the next one. <laughs> What leads to well, it's funny because yeah, I, I pitched several ideas to my publisher, and and they really zeroed in on this book about Harold Gillies. And I have to say that I didn't know much about Gillies at all going into it, but I knew, you know, I'm I'm a historian and I have a PhD, but I like to call myself a storyteller, and I know a good story when I I can you can yeah. feel it, you know, as a storyteller. And I knew that Gillies was going to be a good story, but I didn't know that's like basically all I knew. And so they said yes, that book. And so I thought shit, now I gotta. <laughs> I got to start from zero and in zero literally was like, let's go back to the basics. Why did World War One even break out? Like, how did all of this start? So it's been a real journey. And the other challenge has been that World War One is so there's so much written about it. And these soldiers were they were writing letters and diaries. There's so much material, you know, in the 19th century. One of the problems is you don't have enough material. Um, in cases, especially when it comes to the patient experience here, you just have like just so much material. And so one of my jobs as a narrative nonfiction writer is to kind of weed through that and to give the, the most gripping sort of fast paced story I can get um, without it being too technical. And another issue, too, is like plastic surgery in World War One, because it, it starts to mirror what we're doing today to some extent. So that the language becomes more technical. So I had to really read through all this medical lingo, try to understand what Bruins was doing. He's literally rebuilding people's faces. So it's been challenging, but I'm excited. I can't really say much more about like when it's coming out or the title, but I'm going to be releasing that stuff soon. So I'll ping you an email and then you can share it with people if they're interested. I know. I wish I could say it because I got a really good title too. Uh, I think you guys like it took me four years to figure out the title. So when I come on to do the podcast for that book, we can talk about all of this. It's <laughs> killing me. It's but it, it it is an odd thing though, right? And it's again, and I know we're on like I can talk to you forever. I know I know we're on widely different uh uh time zones. So if you need to go, you just let me know. I don't care. I you can't hurt my feelings. Um well, but, I have to go soonish, but because right, I yeah. haven't eaten but I did a virtual event. But yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, tell me how much longer you can go. Uh, time is Literally it? whatever you want. I, 
like another five minutes. Is that five, five is that minutes? Cool? Let's do it. Yeah. It's um yeah. yeah, no, that's the other thing is I have, I have zero feelings with this. And I love when I I love when a guest just like they like they they pick me up on that and they're just like, Hey, I gotta go. And I'm like, all right, cool, peace. Like let's it's no bullshit. No, just pull the band-aid off. Like I gotta go. Oh, thank you very much. I was worried about the bathroom thing with the Rogan podcast because I was like, Oh my god, how am I gonna make it like for two three hours just of this? Hold but up was, a middle finger and say I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Well, they told me, they said, oh, if you have to, and I, I thought, oh, that would be weird. But now I've seen someone do it in live time. Just get up and go. I literally have done it with, with every, I've done it with every, I think I didn't do it with Charlie Duke who walked on the moon. I think with him, I held it in with, listen, with the next book, I got to make it the podcast so gripping that you will not take a bathroom break. That's going to be like my goal. <laughs> now I'm going to die because my bladder is going to explode and die of sepsis. And I'm going to remind you, cut out fluids three hours before absolute, we talk. But. Absolute nonsense. Speaking of fluids, what is, what is what is SM Novella? For everyone listening on the screen, there's two bottles next to you. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I have, yeah, I was doing a, an event with an author named Catherine Prendergast uh, in her book, The Gilded Edge, is about this love triangle in the 20th century that ends in cyanide poisoning. So I just have these kind of poison bottles. But this, these bottles here, they're from Italy, and there's like this pharmacy that's that sells these. I don't know what they do. I oh, think they're. I, I, thought, I think they're. <laughs> I thought you. I, I thought you had like your own like liquor line, and you just had it like <laughs> prominently there. I was like, well, I'll plug it. Yeah. No, oh. or maybe it's like Halstead with the cocaine. Like maybe maybe I try it, and we figure out what the hell it is. But no, it was just like for the effect of the virtual event I was doing because her uh, book is about poisoning, and so I put out the poison bottles. Right. I have lots of like, crazy yeah stuff. I mean, you can see there's a Lister like nineteenth um, century microscope behind me and there's no human remains like those are all yeah uh was carved by this guy named zane wiley he sells them um online and stuff but yeah i got lots of weird stuff i used to do a youtube channel called under the knife and it, so I, I have like so many props no, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was just wait can you, can you put your hand on the bottle again on this one okay i thought it was, it was close up i thought it was the size of like a liquor bottle and i'm now looking at it's oh, it's no, perception it's, no it's a tiny it's little I thought you had these. I wasn't sure if you just had like a, yeah. your own liquor line. I was like, that's cool. No, but that would be amazing. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a big gin fan. Maybe I need yeah. to kind of make my own like medicinal kind, gin line. It kind of looks like, to, yeah. You drink medicinally as well. But yeah, like the, I have a, um, a YouTube, uh, episode on the medieval urine wheel which is back here it yeah. was in, in, the, in the medieval time they had these urine wheels that told the different colors of urine and um it would tell you you know what was wrong with you and so i took that wheel and it's 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 pretty small but i put it way up in front of the camera and then i stood way behind it and it looked like a wheel of fortune yeah. and so i'm spinning it it's ridiculous but yeah the camera angles make everything i was so look confused smaller or bigger. <laughs> well, it, it looks like some Victorian era. Like again, you can yeah, imagine the just swigging that and chopping people up. And, just... and then my this is an actual um, Victorian bottle, and it says poison on the top. Usually, when they were this kind of cobalt uh, blue, they it signified that it was probably not something you should drink. I did an episode on the curious life and death of about Lizzie Borden. If yeah, you remember, yeah, Lizzie Borden had an axe, killed her. Yeah, to give her yeah. another forty wax. In this episode, we had these ballistic gel bodies that I would, oh, like, Jesus. we would shoot up and do all kinds of weird things. So this is the first episode. This is my first TV show I've ever hosted. And they hand me an axe, and they're like, okay, so you have to replicate replicate these murders because we need to see how much force is used and how much blood would end up on you. Because when Lizzie Borden, it, when the police arrived, there's no blood on her. So we're like, how, how, does that, how does she do that if she did these murders? So they hand me this axe, and then the director is like, um, it's a weapon, <laughs> that's what he says to me. And he goes, and don't let it slip and hit you in the leg, and good luck. And that was like kind of like the level of, you know, that that's what it was just like, go at it. And by the way, if you're going to kill somebody, don't use an axe. It takes a lot of work. I could not believe how much force it took to crack through the skull of this ballistic body. It was insane. And at one point, actually, the director said, oh, do we need someone to come in and, you know, crack the skull and then you can walk? I said, no, I have to be able to do it because the point was that people didn't believe a woman could do this crime. And there was a Scotland Yard detective who's in the show. His name's Brian. And I said, it, it is really hard. And he said, and I said, you know, Lizzie Borden was really small. 
And he said, yeah, I've seen people do a lot worse, you know, when the adrenaline's pumping. So it's different when you're just kind of like on set trying to replicate something different when it's, you know, so uh, we, it was really, it was fun, (laughs) but in quotes, to replicate the Lizzie Borden murders, uh, talk about, you know, inappropriately dealing with the past, but, but it's a wild story. And for people who don't totally remember it, there was that rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an ax, gave mm-hmm. her mother 40, 40 wax. Yeah. 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 And, um, it, what, what I found out in the process of filming this episode was that later in life, I mean, she was acquitted because these Victorian, um, men who were on her jury just could not fathom this this woman of this uh, sort of high class standing being able to do something like that. But there was a lot of evidence that she could have done it. She certainly had the motive. You know, we could debate whether you know she was she burned the dress uh, that she was wearing on the day of the murders, which seemed really suspicious. But she said, well, she'd gotten paint on it, and so she burned it. And that was something Victorians did. They would get rid of their clothes. They would burn them sometimes. But there was a lot of reasons, I think, to believe that she could have definitely done this. But if she did it, this was the part that I found so creepy. If she did it, when she died, she requested that she be buried next to her stepmother and her father. And she is indeed buried there. So, I mean, if she did it, that is levels of, you know, psychopath that I don't even want to contemplate. Um, I don't know if she did it because she just thought, like, everybody's whispering behind the backs of their hands that I did it. I want to, you know, go out yeah. and prove that I didn't. I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth all the time about whether she did it or not. But there is a book, you know, when I was filming this, I said to my dad, well, she had to do it because, you know, what are the chances that, like, this random person comes in and, and axes these people to death? And he said, oh, well, there's this book. And I, and I can't remember the name of it, but you can probably look it up by Googling just roughly what I'm saying. Um, but there was apparently there was these these uh, writers recently discovered that there was this axe murderer who was traveling through America on trains and actually breaking into people's homes. It was at the turn of the 20th century and doing this. He was killing them with an axe and it was these brutal murders and he laid the bodies out in a very distinct way. And the reason why these writers were able to, and by the way, people in these towns were, were, there were people who were accused of doing these murders and some of them were executed on the basis of it, I believe. Um, But this guy got away with it because he was traveling by train. It was random. He was picking these locations seemingly by random. Um, So I just wonder if like Lizzie Borden, that was eight, I think that was 1892, 1893. Is this like a precursor? Like, could it have been this, you know, this random person, Oh, you know, because this was sort of, we're talking like very turn of the 20th century that this guy was murdering. And these writers, they discovered this by linking all these newspaper articles and kind of, they put this mystery together and it's a very bizarre story. So when I called my dad and I was like, well, it's gotta be Lizzie Borden because like who else is going in? murdering people with axes which by the way is such a personal crime and he was like well there's this guy in the 20th century that was going around just like randomly axing people in their houses so there you go another book for your uh maybe maybe for your podcast (laughs) yeah no it's but that make right it's like some sort almost like a like a jack the ripper-esque like Yeah. yeah And it would just be shielded I mean, by it, something else. Jack the Ripper is unknowable. You know, I mean, we're never going to know who he was. I, I don't think that there's, you know, a huge, I mean, there, there's just no way to really know. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the reason why we keep going back to it is because we don't know. You know, was Ripper was was horrible and what he did was horrible. But there's also like this debate about, you know, were these even the first crimes of his because they were so violent. One has to think that maybe there were some precursors that were less violent and he starts to ramp up. So, for instance, in the medical records in Whitechapel, in some of these hospitals, you will get a case of a person, for instance, around the Ripper times where it says that they um, committed suicide by taking their own life by cutting their throat to the vertebrae. Nobody can do that. I mean, as far as I know, that would be a very difficult thing to do to yourself. So you look at that and you think, well, that had to have been a murder. You know, was this sort of an early example of a ripper murder? And things kind of, you know, ramp up because some of these cases, um, they fit the kind of profile of who he was looking, you know, uh, you know, women who are on the street, who are homeless, um, so it's, it's an interesting thing, but, uh, yeah, I think it's one of those mysteries we'll never know, but we just keep going back to because it's unknowable. I've always said on this podcast, like the one thing I like is 
you know, I love to find people who've written things that I'm interested in, but above all else, I love to talk to people who are passionate about anything. I had on a guy that has a laser printing or a laser clean, they clean printers, but I loved it because he just loved it. You radiate like this is what you're passionate about. And I think that's fucking beautiful. Like you, Thank you. <laughs> you. You light up with like, let me go in and tell you about this guy who drove into the, <laughs> the trenches in a in a in a Rolls Royce. Like, yeah. that's incredible. Let me tell you about the guy who lost his testicle in the 19th century. No, yeah, but I, seriously. I get very excited about these stories, but I do. I'm very. Thank you for saying that because I'm very passionate about sharing my very weird knowledge. You know, spending. I have no practical skills whatsoever. I can't do anything, but me I can either. tell you all these weird stories about the past. So that's what I end up doing, but it's been such a joy to talk to you. And I hope I can come back and talk to you about the next hundred percent. You don't have a choice, but I was going to say, <laughs> no, it's, but that's, you know, if you tried to write a book on the history of, of, you know, shoes, you'd probably be like, fuck this. But that's why I think the butchering art's so good is you clearly love it. Like you clearly love it. I love and it. that's what evokes this imagery of the three piece suit, just chopping up people <laughs> and a horse drawn carriage. And it's just like yeah. nothing, who knows? There's no such thing as germs. Fuck it. You know, it's, I think there's something <laughs> beautiful about that. And well, maybe, maybe when I come back, there'll be a, a news about a movie. That's always my dream. I joke that I'm trying to go into Hollywood as a total outsider and say, you need to make a movie about this guy you've never heard of, you do. except through the product Listerine. Um, which, guys, remember, it was used to treat gonorrhea. It was not used as a mouthwash in the 19th century. I don't endorse that, but there you go. That's the way history is. That's I Honestly, I, I think it would be incredible. And everyone, I highly, again, the biggest compliment I can give it is, is I listened to this book before I started the podcast. I'd listened to it because <laughs> I wanted to. So take from that what you will. I think everyone, they know I've recommended books on this podcast a million times. This is one of the few books I can, this Raven Rock and Operation Paperclip. Those are three books that I listened to before the podcast. And I don't think anything else. So I highly recommend those. And I can't wait to talk to you for your next book. And I will let you go because I know you need to eat. And uh, (laughs) I can keep talking to you forever, but I will let you go. This was great fun. Thanks for for chasing me down. And I was alive and I'm glad that we were able to schedule it. I got it. It took a while, but persistence, (laughs) it worked. I got you. And that's what yep, that, that's one of the work. wind column. Thank you so yep. much. I'll put all your stuff in the description. Guys, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. The narrator's incredible. Does all the perfect uh, accents. It's disgusting. <laughs> you'll throw up probably. You'll also laugh your ass off. And you'll appreciate modern day medicine like you never have before. <laughs> Miss Lindsay Fitzharris, thank you so much. Thank, Take care. Thank you. you have a good one. Everybody else, Recording take care. Recording stopped. Bye-bye.